This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to BIEB 152, Evolution of Infectious Disease. Uh, today is one of my favorite lectures in this course. And in this lecture, this is where we're going to take the things that we've learned about uh, mutation rates and neutral genetic drift and natural selection. And we're going to take what we learned about how they work and now apply that understanding to analyzing modern DNA or RNA sequences of viruses that are infecting people or bacteria that are infecting people. And so this is really where that fundamental knowledge can then be applied to understanding uh, the evolution of diseases. Uh, and then with that application, we can then um, learn about you know, how these diseases have changed and um, what we might have to look out for. Um, and so this will make a little bit more sense as we go through, but basically we're gonna analyze DNA sequences to reconstruct their evolutionary history. That's what we did with phylogenies last time. And now we're gonna look at patterns in the sequences um, and the variation in the sequences to figure out um, when did those mutations evolve? When did key traits uh, evolve? When did viruses jump into a new host species like bats to humans, such as for SARS-CoV-2? Um, and also whether or not uh, these viruses are adapting to their new hosts or you know, if there's just patterns of natural selection versus neutral genetic drift in these DNA sequences. Okay, that um, was a lot, and so we'll just get, get to the lecture. Um, first, we'll start, of course, with the, um, checking the temperature of COVID-19, um, and then we'll move into uh, this, this pretty cool lecture. Oh yeah, and it's, uh, it's lecture number 10, so we're, we're about halfway through the term now. Okay, so taking the temperature on COVID-19, uh, what do I wanna talk about today? Um, I wanna talk about remdesivir again. Uh, so we have this on-again, off-again relationship with remdesivir. Uh, we got the initial data from the Gilead study saying that it looked promising, and then um, just a week later from the same news source, it said that there was evidence that it doesn't look promising. Um, and now just last night, um, it was revealed that the NIH has a study on remdesivir. It's, an, it's a massive study. Um, and it's controlled, it's the type of study that we need to prove that a, um, a therapy actually works. So Dr. Fauci uh, has said that there is quite good news coming from this study um, and that uh, they're going to fast track uh, emergency approval through the FDA uh, to actually use remdesivir um, again to fight COVID-19. So it was discovered in this study that it does reduce recovery time. So typically it takes uh, a patient in a hospital about 15 days to recover, and this reduces it down by 31%. Uh, so what is a normal 15-day stay in the hospital would be an 11-day stay in the hospital. This is not a cure by any means, but if we can reduce the time that people spend in the hospital by 33%, then we essentially have enhanced our capacity by 33%, which is enormous. Um, so that's, that's you know, at a sort of population level and a medical system level, that's a really big advantage that we've just gained. So yeah, so they're gonna start using remdesivir. Uh, I hope, you know, we talked a little bit before about how to safely use remdesivir. 
with respect to not promoting the evolution of resistance to remdesivir. Uh, we know that there are a couple sites in the polymerase that remdesivir targets that if they mutate, the virus will gain resistance to the drug. And so we don't want those mutations to spread and we don't want resistant strains of SARS-CoV-2 to spread. And so hopefully they only use remdesivir in the hospital um, and they quarantine people that have uh, COVID-19 and are being treated with remdesivir uh, so that if they do promote the evolution of resistance, that strain can't escape from the hospital and it's a, a basically an evolutionary dead end. So I'm not sure exactly the logistics of how they're going to use it, but I think that they are certainly going to be careful, especially because this is still considered a, an experimental drug. Um, you know, this is just a, a certain uh, special situation where they're going to fast track the, the um, use of uh, remdesivir. So that's good news. Uh, and I think while, you know, it's a sort of off again, on again relationship that we've had with this drug in this course and talking about it, um, I think it's, uh, it's a nice example for students in that this is how science is done. You know, you're, you're just collecting more and more evidence and sometimes it looks positive, sometimes it looks negative. And then you do that sort of really large study where you can find that definitive evidence for whether or not it works or not. Uh, and so that's true at all levels of science. You're sort of, uh, you have, you're building hypotheses and you're testing them. And then you are finally getting to a stage where you have that sort of definitive test, uh, that, that big experiment where you run it and then you see what the results are. So we're all seeing science in action in real time. It's not as straightforward as, as a lot of people think. You know, it goes back and forth. But in the end, when you do that final experiment like they've done, um, hopefully that's the, that's the end of the story for the, the research. And, and it means that um, we can actually use this drug. So um, when we were talking about remdesivir before, um, we were talking about it um, imitating ATP and that it would um, act, act in, in the polymerase like an ATP molecule and that would gum up the production of the RNA. And so when I was um, looking through the literature, I found this preprint um, that what they did is they are modeling so this is a computational model where all of these arrows are the structure of the polymerase. And so it's, it's a massive molecule, but this is just sort of zooming into the polymerase. And then this is an ATP molecule in the polymerase where it, where it usually sits in order to be added to the mRNA chain. Um, and so what they've done is they've also modeled where um, remdesivir, so this is called remTP. It turns out that when remdesivir uh, enters a cell, it gets hydrolyzed and phosphorylated. So it actually looks a little bit different than the molecule that I showed you guys the other day. And actually, if you see, this molecule looks a lot more like the ATP molecule than I showed you that is the unhydrolyzed and unphosphorylated uh, remdesivir molecule. Okay, so this is, this is remTP, and it looks like it fills the exact same spot uh, in, the, in the polymerase. And so that, that gives us a mechanistic understanding for why this drug works, why it causes the RNA, the construction of the RNA molecule, this is the genome of the virus, um, to fail. You have these uh, terminations of the creation of the RNA, and it interferes with the replication of the virus.
this this is an understandable mechanism and it does seem to be working um and so that's this is all all really good news um i'm really really very happy about this uh we just need some kind of therapies to fight this thing back so that we you know have less death um have less morbidity that's just uh sickness and have a way to just boost our our hospital systems so that they can handle more patients okay so moving on to the actual lecture. So the, the title of this lecture, oh, and it's not lecture 11, sorry about that, lecture number 10. Uh, it's Interpreting Evolutionary Process from the Pattern of DNA Sequences, Molecular Clocks, and DNDS Ratios. So what I want to do is, so far in the lectures, we've talked about evolutionary processes, but now I want to look at the pattern that evolved. So these are modern DNA and RNA sequences from pathogens. And then looking at those patterns, can we reconstruct how exactly they evolved? Um, and so that's what we're going to talk about molecular clocks. That's timing when things evolved. And these DNDS ratios, that's actually a method to detect whether or not natural selection has acted on the evolution of the DNA or the RNA. Moving forward. So I want to uh, introduce you guys to this idea of a molecular clock. And molecular clocks are really important. They're also, they're especially important um, in understanding SARS-CoV-2 evolution uh, because it, it tells us when this disease jumped into the human population and began to spread, when the disease, what time it spread from um, one population to another population. And so we really do wanna understand um, how these molecular clocks work, how we calculate them, and how we can make inferences about when certain things happen in the evolution of an organism. Okay, basically, we've, we've looked at this phylogeny many times. This is from uh, nextstrain.org. Uh, this is the SARS-CoV-2 phylogeny. Um, and uh, last time we were, we were talking about building, building this phylogeny. Um, and this time what I want to do is I want to sort of zoom into just two of these genomes. So one genome from this clade and one genome from that clade. So a clade is just a, a group of organisms that form a monophyletic group. But so this would be a clade because this is all a monophyletic group. This is a clade here because it's a, it's a monophyletic group as well um, that are clustered together. Okay, so um, I, wanna, I wanna say, figure out, you know, when did this group of viruses branch off from this group of viruses? And so I'm just gonna simplify that phylogeny down so that we're just looking at the evolution that happened between when there was a common ancestor for both of these uh, viruses, and these are the branches now leading out to the viruses. So this is a phylogeny, it's just a very simple one that has uh, two strains showing these evolutionary relationships. And so um, it turns out that often there's a really steady rate at which strains accumulate mutations. And this is what we call a molecular clock. And so we have this ancestral sequence of DNA here. This is the common ancestor. Um, we don't, we've actually never sequenced this. Remember, this is just a hypothesis. You know, we have the sequence of this extant uh, genome, and we have the, the sequence of this extant genome. Um, and then basically what this ancestor is, is kind of the, um, 
the average of these of these two. Uh, remember, we use the we use phylogenies to reconstruct these ancestral states, and so we have a hypothesis for hypothesis for what this state is, and then we know that these mutations leading out to here happened on this branch of evolution, and there are separate mutations that evolved out here on this separate branch of evolution. Okay, and so when I when I'm referring to molecular clock, it's that you know as time progresses, we tend to get one you know one mutation in SARS-CoV in two weeks and a second mutation in SARS-CoV in the next two weeks, um, and that this this tends to happen in a very sort of methodical way as more time progresses, uh, the same number of mutations uh, accumulate through time, and so this is just a diagram showing that. There's one mutation happening on this branch, a different one happening on this branch, and so forth. And the result is that we have this sequence, and obviously this is not the full genome. This is just zooming into the variable region in the, in the genomes. Um, but we see that there's been four total mutations, two on this branch of evolution and two on that branch of evolution. So now I wanna, I'm, I'm going to get a little away from... Um, uh, from SARS-CoV-2, I want to use this example of HIV, obviously uh, another pandemic-causing uh, virus um, that has plagued our, 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 our species. And so I want to be able to date, so just as a little background, um, when you look at this phylogeny, this is uh, the phylogeny uh, for HIV, um, but also SIV, so uh, simian viruses. Uh, so we know that HIV came from chimpanzees and jumped into the, the human population um, somewhere in Africa, actually a pretty long time ago. Um, and so, and actually we also know that it jumped into the human population a couple different times. So there's HIV-1 and there's HIV-2. Uh, and so this phylogeny helps us see that. You know, we can see that at the base of this phylogeny, we have all of these different SIV strains um, and then um, embedded within those SIV strains are these clades, these monophyletic groups of HIV-2 uh, and HIV-1. So that indicates that this strain has actually jumped into the human population two times. And so now I want to say, you know, we know that in the 80s, that's when AIDS, um, the disease that HIV causes, was you know, a huge problem was getting out of control. People didn't know what was causing this, this new disease. Um, and it was, it was very frightening. And so the question was, is did this actually evolve in the 1980s or did it evolve long before then? And so what we found out by, by building these phylogenies and by using molecular clocks is that it actually evolved a very long time ago. It jumped into humans, and I actually forget the, the exact date. We'll go over that in a later lecture that's specifically on HIV. Um, but it was much earlier than the 1980s. Um, and so it was this phylogenetic reconstruction that allowed us to, to figure that out. Okay, so what I'm about to show you is just sort of hypothetical dating. These are not the real values that they used in the, um, the original uh, study. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to be able to reconstruct how long ago this event happened here. So this is the most recent common ancestor that separates SIV from HIV-1. And so I want to know how long ago 
this actually, this ancestor existed because that's like the furthest back before the disease um, jumped into the human population. So the disease jumped in the human population sometime between this point and that point here. And so this is the furthest back um, that it could happen. And so remember when we built phylogenies, we actually come up with a hypothesis for what this sequence is. We don't know that sequence, but we have a hypothesis for it. Of course, we actually have uh, the, the extant um, sequences as well. So this is a modern uh, HIV that they isolated from a patient and they're able to sequence its RNA. Um, this is actually uh, a DNA sequence here. Um, you turn RNA into DNA and then you sequence it. And what I'm describing here is that, you know, compared to the ancestor, there's a number of positions in this sequence that have actually uh, evolved and they have changed uh, their nucleotides. And so they're just indicated here as these smaller uh, letters um, and they're red here. So what we can see is that the time since this common ancestor, there's been five mutations in this sequence. We can now use information that we've already learned in the class uh, to figure out, you know, actually given a mutation rate for HIV and given some other characteristics, uh, can we actually figure out how long ago that likely happened because we know sort of the per generation rate at which these mutations accumulate. Okay, so basically, um, I want to sort of think about our previous lessons on mutation rates and neutral substitution rates uh, to then be able to back calculate when exactly this, um, this emergence probably happened. And so we need three bits of information. We need, the, to, need to know the fact that neutral substitution rates equals the mutation rate, the per base per generation mutation rate. Um, so we already proved this. And so if we're looking at a, at a, at a neutral gene, um, then uh, we, can, we can know the rate at which we expect to see substitutions. And so, of course, then we also need to know, well, how big is that gene that we're looking at? How many of these bases have an opportunity to mutate? And then the third thing we need to know is, well, this unit is a per base per generation mutation rate. So the time in this, um, in this unit is per generation. But, you know, we want to be able to translate per generation actually into a calendar date. You know, what year did HIV jump into the human population? And so what we have to do is we have to know the generation time. So the average time that, you know, one viral particle gives rise to another viral particle that then causes another infection that gives rise to another viral particle and so forth. So what's the, what's the generation time of, of a virus or what's the generation time of bacteria? This is also, we, we talked about this before as the doubling time. So if we have these modern sequences and we have information, all of this information, then we're actually able to back calculate when this point in time occurred. So next, I want to just walk through um, the, the type of calculation that we can make. Um, and this is, this is something that you'll probably have to you know, pause and, um, and go back over and make sure you understand 
where all of this information is coming from. But basically, if we know uh, a modern sequence and we have the phylogeny so we can reconstruct uh, the ancestral sequence, if we have the per-base mutation rate for a genome and we have the generation time, then that's all the information we need to back calculate when that, um, that emergence actually happened. Okay, so this is gonna get a little bit more complicated, but honestly, if you, um, if you sort of sit down and think about the numbers, uh, you'll, you'll be able to figure this out. So we wanna get, so the first thing we're calculating is the total number of generations that have passed. So this is just saying, um, you know, given the, the per generation mutation rate and how many mutations we've seen, um, how many generations have passed. Later, we'll then convert that generations um, using the doubling time into an actual calendar date. Um, and so that's just going to be the total number of substitutions. So that's five substitutions that have happened in this sequence divided by the number of substitutions um, in one generation. So this is where it gets a little bit trickier, where we, what we want to do is we want to say, well, what are the number of substitutions we expect to occur in a given generation, provided that we have a certain mutation rate? Um, and so this is just basically a conversion factor that we're creating here. Um, so we have the DNA sequence length, so that's the number of, um, number of bases, so that's the total DNA that we're looking at here, not just the variable sites, but the total, uh, our window that we have, that we're looking into the, um, into the genome. Um, and then we have the, the per base, per generation mutation rate, and so we just times that together, and we get this. So we get five, um, you know, five substitutions, and this is the number of expected substitutions per generation. So this is obviously going to be a really very small number, um, and so this is going to really amplify, um, because it's in the denominator, amplify the value of the number of generations that have passed. And so then what we do is we say, what's the total time pass? So we take the number of generations calculated here times the generation time. And so now this gives us this equation here, time at split, so that's time of emergence, uh, will equal the total number of substitutions, that's five, divided by the DNA sequence length times UB, that's 25 times 10 to the minus four, times the generation time. And for this, you can sort of just plug and chug and walk through it, and you get 11.1 years, okay? So this is um, the way that, this is the equation that you use if you're given a hypothetical ancestral sequence and a modern extant sequence. But you can also change this equation so that you don't have to calculate or you don't have to hypothesize what that ancestral sequence actually is, where you can actually just compare two modern sequences to each other. And so this is what we're doing next. We're modifying that equation so that if I'm given, this is the original sequence that we were, we were given, and now I'm looking at another sequence that happens in this, S, this SIV. Um, and what we can see is that there's five different, these are unique mutations 
um, in this sequence as well. So the second site has changed. This is the this is the fourth site. Notice that you know these are different positions in the DNA sequence, and so this is a different position than that one. Um, so it, sometimes in the past people have uh, thought that these sort of lined up with each other, but they don't. These are unique sites in the gene, and these are unique sites in the gene that have mutated as well. There's five here, and there's five here. And so now what we can do is we can go back to this equation. And so the total number of polymorphic sites is now 10, five in here, five in there. So that's, that's changing our equation. The, the denominator is actually the same, but now we have to do this thing where we uh, times by one half. And so why, why are we timesing by one half? Does that make any sense at all? Um, and the reason that we're timesing by one half is because now we're looking at variation that had an opportunity to accumulate on two different populations. So two different branches in this phylogenetic tree. So from this point here, this SIV strain accumulated mutations out to here. And from this point here, this HIV strain accumulated mutations out to there. And so because you are analyzing now the opportunity of two separate lineages. Um, if you wanna backdate to that point where they split from each other, you don't wanna just sort of add up the, the total number of polymorphisms. You have to sort of average the total number of polymorphisms. And so that's what that one half is, is that you're taking the average. So that's the average of it evolving on one branch and it evolving on the other branch. And so when you do that, um, given that they had the same number of mutations, that's not always true. Sometimes one will have more mutations than another one just by happenstance. Um, but given that they have the same number of variable sites, um, you get the exact same answer as you got before. So that is how we can um, apply what we learned about mutation rates and neutral substitution rates um, to be able to back calculate when certain evolutionary events happen. Okay, this is just further discussion of that one half um, that we've already gone through. And so here is another example. Um, and this is just, uh, you know, doing the exact same process as we just went through. Um, and what we get is 219 years. You just sort of see, so one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. That's where you get the eight. Um, this is the mutation rate. You get this, um, uh, you get one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 total nucleotides. So um, that is uh, 20 times 10 to the minus fifth, which is two times 10 to the minus fourth. That's just um, you know simple transformation, um, and then we have uh, generation time of four days. We have to account for that one half because we're looking at two modern sequences, um, and we get a calculation of eighty thousand days, um, and then that equals two hundred nineteen years. Okay, so the big question that a lot of students have is. Um, how do we choose which, we have all of these different strains of HIV and SIV, how, what, what strains do we choose to do this analysis on? 
And there's lots of different options. I just want to walk through a, a handful of options that are correct and one option that uh, is, is wrong. Um, and so basically, you want to choose. So if I want to back calculate to this point, this is the point that we we're looking at before. I would choose basically any SIV that is in this clade here. Because all of these SIVs share a common ancestor that is the most recent common ancestor to all of the HIVs that have emerged. So that's the most recent time in the, in the past where SIV and HIV shared a common ancestor. So that would be correct is you could pick any of these guys. So I just picked this one um, and any of these guys over here. And if you then follow back in the phylogenetic tree, and connect to the two uh, OTUs that you're looking at, um, you then pass through this common ancestor that is the most recent that separates SIV and HIV. I would also say that it's fine for you to do this as well. This is probably, it's, um, it's maybe not as great, but say, say we know that this is a point in time that is the furthest distance back where emergence could have occurred. And this is the most recent point in time where emergence could have occurred. So actually emergence occurred sometime uh, between these two points here. And so I'm fine with you calculating the time distance back from here or the distance back from there because we know that it's sometime between those two points. And so in order to be able to calculate the dis uh, when this bifurcation happened, um, then you would want to pick any of the HIVs um, from this point in the tree and any of the HIVs in this point of the tree, because if you pick them and then you connect them in the phylogeny, they cross through this common ancestor, which is the point that we want to calculate. So I hope that that helps um, you, know, you to sort of look at the phylogeny and see sort of you know, what are the OTUs that share the common ancestor in which I want to date? Um, and then you can, you just pick two, two of them. So one on one side of the tree and one on the other side of the tree. Uh, and then you can back calculate the, the date. What you would not want to do is pick any random set of HIV ones or any random set of SIVs. Uh, so in here, if you calculated when this this sequence diverged from this sequence when its common ancestor was, you would get this point here, not this point and not that point. Say for instance, if you chose one of these SIVs and one of these HIVs, you would calculate the point back to here. This is when they shared a common ancestor. So you wanna be careful with what you actually, what two OTUs you use to back calculate when this emergence actually happened. Okay, so here's another question. Why are molecular clocks dependable? Why can we trust them? And I've already kind of hinted at this. Basically, um, molecular clocks are especially dependable when you look at areas of the genome that are evolving neutrally. And the reason for that is that um, we know that the, the rate of evolution, the, the neutral substitution rate, is purely a function of mu. 
And so it is not dependent on selective pressure and environmental fluctuations. It's not dependent on fluctuation in population sizes. It's just dependent on you. And so since it's dependent on this one variable, then it's going to behave very methodically and very much like a clock. So the question is, when do molecular clocks fail? Okay, yep, typically when I give you the all of the above option, it's the all of the above option. So now what I wanna do is I wanna walk through each of these answers and describe you know, why exactly would a molecular clock fail due to these different factors. Okay, so say for instance, you're analyzing a piece of DNA that is not a pseudogene, that is coding for an actual protein, then you might experience problems because that sequence there might be optimized and might be experiencing purifying natural selection. So what I've drawn here is we talked about fitness peaks before. This was in reference to antibiotic resistance. We found that there was a, a sequence that was optimal uh, that had four mutations in it. Um, but if you had added additional mutations into it, it would fall off the fitness peak, or if you reversed a mutation and you only had three mutations, then it would also fall off the fitness peak. So there is an optimality in that uh, DNA sequence. And so if a population or if an organism has evolved to be optimal and you end up mutating it in any kind of way, then it's going to remove it from optimality and these mutations are going to be deleterious and so they're going to be purged from the population and so the sequence is going to remain the same through time. And so what this would do is it would actually um, slow down the molecular clock, and it might slow it down in um, non-regular ways uh, so that it would actually interfere with uh, making the inference about um, the time of divergence or so forth. The next one is the counterexample. Perhaps you're looking at a sequence that is experiencing natural selection, but that sequence is not optimal, and so it's experiencing positive natural selection. Well, what's going to happen is we remember that one of the reasons why the neutral substitution rate uh, behaves uh, clock-like is that there's the, the, the rate at which new mutations occur in a population is mu times n, and then the probability that any of those new mutations actually fix is one divided by n, and so the n's cancel out, and that just leaves you with mu and gives you this really clock-like behavior. However, what natural selection is going to do is it's, if, if there's positive selection is that it's going to enhance the probability that any one of those mutations is going to fix in the population. And so it's basically going to increase this value above the, the, the rate of or the probability of fixation above 1 divided by n. And so now the, the rate of evolution is going to depend on the mutation rate combined with how strong selection uh, is and we know that selection might fluctuate as environments change or so forth through time and so it would make the evolution be non-clock-like. So what I'm just showing you here is that this is a scenario we've done all of these simulations before um, where you have um, only neutral evolution and you know some fraction of the population's 
the mutations are lost and some of them drive to fixation. But as you turn up the knob of strength of selection, uh, you get more and more mutations fixing and actually they even fix faster. Um, and so it's going to alter the probability of fixation and uh, affect the rate of evolution. So that's obviously a problem as well. Now, this is where um, things get, get a little bit annoying and why even if you're using molecular clock that is based on a pseudogene or neutral substitutions, um, things can, can actually get a little bit wacky. And that is if the generation time of an organism, so, right? That's an important part of the calculation is relating, you know, how long does it take for the organism to divide and then back calculating uh, deep into its evolutionary history. Well, the problem with that is that we know generation times can evolve. You know, things can evolve to grow faster and faster. That shortens their generation time. And so this calculation is going to be off. Another problem is we also know that mutation rates can evolve through time. We saw in that, that experiment with Richard Lenski that the bacteria evolved higher mutation rates during the experiment. And so if we measure mutation rate nowadays that's higher than mutation rates that first were occurring in the, po the ancestral populations, then that is going to throw off our ability to calculate um, how many mutations we expected to see in a given amount of time in one generation compared to how many we saw. And so it's going to throw off this, this clock calculation. So yeah, so molecular clocks are reasonably, work reasonably well, but there are all of these ways that they get thrown off. So if you're ever making this calculation in a real world scenario, you want to make sure that these assumptions that we're making don't fail. So in a real world scenario, what do we do? Um, because all of these things could be happening. You know, sometimes in viruses, most of the time in viruses, you don't have pseudogenes. So you can't just look at a dead piece of DNA and uh, establish a clock. You have to actually look at coding genes. This is just because viral genomes are so small um, that they use basically every base to code for a protein or code for something that's functional. Um, whereas larger genomes, even bacteria can have pseudogenes, uh, and certainly we have tons and tons of junk DNA in our genomes. So if you wanna look at viruses, you're, you're, you're bound to have to use coding regions um, that are not pseudogenes. And, you know, we know viruses, their mutation rates can evolve and their generations time, generation times can heighten. Um, and so there's lots of problems with using molecular clocks, making all those assumptions that we just made. However, what we can do, there, are, there is a solution. And that solution is we can just get a bunch of data and see, is there any tre trend between time and the number of mutations that accumulate and if there is a trend, we can use the slope of that line to figure out the rate at which mutations are, in general, accumulating in these viruses. And so this is, this is uh, data from that next strain.org. This is for SARS-CoV-2. Um, this is just from, I think, yesterday. And so it's very modern. And what we can see is that there is a steady rate of accumulation. There's, there's sort of variation around that rate, but on average, we're uh, accumulating 26.257 substitutions per year. So about one substitution every two months. Ah, so that's, that's very slow. What we see is that they are, they are um, behaving clock-like. We can 
we can estimate the clock, and then we can use that to back calculate when certain events actually happened. So we can use both the first principles that we learned in the course in those equations, or we can do this, this is called empirically, where we just measure the damn thing and then use that to back calculate. Empirical measurements are always a little bit better, but sometimes you don't have them. Okay, so that's, that's my section on molecular clocks. Now I wanna move on to a new topic, detecting natural selection and DNA sequences. So the challenge is like the molecular clock, I'm gonna give you two gene sequences. How do we tell if there's been substitutions in them that were driven to fixation by natural selection or by genetic drift? Is there some pattern in these sequences that we can look at in order to figure this out? And so let's just go back to this figure that I had for the molecular clock. So my first idea for how we could do this, given what we've learned in the course already, is that the rate of substitution, we could, we could figure out if there's been positive selection or negative selection, purifying selection, um, or just neutral rate of mutation by looking at how fast these sequence has, sequences have evolved and then asking you know, whether that is faster than the per base mutation rate. So the per base mutation rate is what we expect to be the rate of neutral substitution. And so if we see more mutations than that, then that suggests positive selection. If we see fewer mutations than that, then that suggests purifying selection. So I think that is a, you know, a, a good way to go about it. Um, and so one of the problems with that though is this mutation rate. So the, the rate at which we think that this sequence should evolve is going to be the mutation rate uh, times the number of, uh, of bases that we're looking at in the sequence. Um, the, the one problem with that, this is that often we don't actually know the generation time of these viruses. So we can culture the virus in a lab and we can see how fast does it replicate, but what is it really doing in, in the natural world? How long does that virus tend to sit on the surface before it's picked up by another person? How long does it take for that virus to then go into the, the person and infect a cell? Um, how long, given non-lab conditions and the variability in a human body, does the virus actually reproduce in a cell? And so we don't typically have all of that information. And so we're unable to calculate this sort of baseline expectation of how many mutations we think will substitute in a given amount of time. And so because this calculation would be sloppy and just sort of really rough, um, we wouldn't be able to make a very strong comparison between the rates at which the gene that we're looking at is evolving compared to what we'd expect from neutral expectations. Okay, so that, that's sort of one problem. Can we get around that problem? Is there a comparison we can make to another part of the same genome to act as a benchmark for neutral evolution? So if these, if these two different locations in the genome, um, loci, they will be experiencing the same number of generations. And so if one locus is, um, we know is a, a pseudogene that is evolving you know, just by neutral evolution, so that's gonna have, you know, it's gonna be accumulating mutations at a certain rate. And then if our candidate gene that we think might be 
experiencing natural selection, if it's evolving at a faster rate um, or a slower rate, then we know that's either positive selection or purifying selection. And so we can make this sort of within genome comparison. And this is, you know, I, I actually do think that this is a good idea. There is one problem with this idea, though. And this is a complication for mutation rates that we haven't gone over yet in this course. And the problem is, is that genomes tend, you know, we, we characterize genomes as having a certain mutation rate. But when we do that, that's actually the average rate across this, all of the sites in the genome. However, when our researchers have been able to look a little bit more closely at certain positions in the genome, they can see that there's variability in the mutation rate. The variability is not, not extreme. You know, it's not the difference between an RNA virus and a DNA virus or an RNA virus and a human or, you know, where there's massive differences in, in mutation rates. But there is some underlying variation that if we were comparing the rates of mutation in different or the, the rates of substitution in different genes, we would have this confounding factor that they might have actually different underlying mutation rates. So that would be an assumption that would be violated. And so what this figure is showing us, this is a chromosome from yeast. You know, these are different positions along the chromosome, and this is a mutation rate estimated for mutations that happen at this position versus all of these other positions. And we can see that it, it fluctuates almost by tenfold. Um, so there, there is there's significant variation. And so what they're showing here is just for this one point, this is the error that they estimated in their mutation rate. Um, and so that's this yellow band is just showing the, the range at which we're uncertain if this mutation rate is different than any of these other mutation rates. But if, if a mutation rate falls outside of that band, then it suggests there's a significant difference. And so certainly this mutation rate is lower than all of these mutation rates up here. And this mutation rate is higher than these mutation rates down here. So yeah, so there is significant variation. And so I just want to take a little detour in case you're, you're freaking out like, well, what does this mean for, you know, our earlier calculations of mu r and mu b? So I just want to spell out what this means, okay? When we calculate mu r, it's a cumulative rate of all the different sites that if mutated causes resistance. So remember, we said, you know, there is a certain number of sites in the genome that, um, that uh, confer resistance if they mutate. And um, what we did is we said, okay, here's the per-base mutation rate. We're gonna take that per-base mutation rate times the total number of sites. So basically what that's doing is that's just summing up all of the different uh, mutation rates at those different sites. In that procedure, we were assuming that there was no variation in those mutation rates. So a more prudent way to, to calculate this is to actually know what is the specific mutation rate at site A? What's the specific mutation rate at site B? What's the specific mutation rate at site C? And then adding those rates up together. And so in this scenario here, uh, that's what I'm showing, is that there's three sites in this chromosome that confer resistance to some kind of antifungal, we'll say. Um, and uh, you know, they, they vary slightly. These are values based on this graph here. Um, and uh, what, what we do is we just add these up, and that gives us the, the mu r. And 
So then often we were given mu r and then we calculated a mu b from it. So what's that calculation of mu b really mean? Well, that mu b maybe is not accurate for every single site in the genome, but it's the average mutation rate. And so effectively what it's doing is it's taking up all of these different mutation rates and just averaging them together to give you this value. So yes, genomes tend to have a, a relatively stable underlying mutation rate, but there is some site-to-site -site variation in that mutation rate. And so I will always, in, in questions, be sure to specify, you know, if this is an average mutation rate or a specific site's mutation rate or so forth. So don't, don't worry about this extra complexity too much. Um, but just know that, yes, genomes tend to behave in a certain way, have a certain mutation rate, but not everything is the same within a genome. Uh, and there are certain regions in genomes that can have higher mutation rates. Okay, back on track to understanding what kind of comparison we can make um, in order to detect the effect of natural selection. So I would say it's bad to compare genes within genomes because they have a different underlying mutation rate. And so then we have to ask ourselves, is there a comparison we can make within the same gene so that we can control for location-specific mutation rates? And in fact, of course, there is. What we can do is um, there are certain positions within genes that do not cause amino acids to change, so natural selection can't act on those mutations. So we're, we're going to walk through this a little bit. But basically, some mutations within a gene don't alter the protein, and natural selection is primarily operating on optimizing proteins or optimizing their expression. In this case, this is, this is the region of the genome that is um, coding the actual amino acid sequence that yields the protein. And so there are some positions there that if you mutate them, they don't translate to an amino acid change, and therefore natural selection can't see them. There's other positions that if they do mutate, they change the amino acid. And so that is a change that may change the function of the protein, and natural selection can see that change and can act on it. And so we have this internal control within proteins where we can compare the rate of substitution that's happening at these sites that can't cause, can't cause amino acid changes and the rate of substitution at sites that can cause amino acid changes. And if these rates are the same, then that's just, that means that this gene is just evolving neutrally. If these rates are different, that means that natural selection is acting to uh, influence the rate of the evolution of that gene. Okay, so let's walk through that this a little bit better. So this is just showing you the difference between one example of a non-synonymous change or a synonymous change. So remember this, this terminology, synonymous versus non-synonymous. Um, and so say we have, we have this DNA codon, TTC, that then is uh, transcribed into mRNA, AAG, translated into tRNA, into lysine. Okay, so this is the normal, the normal amino acid that would be encoded um, by, the, by the gene at one codon. Say there's a mutation that occurs. This would be this change here to a T that changes the mRNA to an AAA, tRNA into UUU. But 
even though this is a mutation, it has not resulted in an amino acid change. You still have a lysine. These are the amino acids down here, lysines. A non-synonymous change would be this example here, where you have a change of that T to a G, so this to there, that changes the mRNA to an AGC. Now the tRNA is UGC, and that tRNA has uh, an amino acid on it that is threonine. This is the molecular structure for threonine. You can see that it's very different. And so um, this may have the effect of altering the function of the protein, sometimes in a positive way, that would be a beneficial mutation, sometimes in a negative way, that would be a deleterious mutation. And so natural selection would either promote the first or uh, uh, purge the second. So what we can do is we can compare the number of non-synonymous changes to the number of synonymous changes. This is called a DNDS ratio. So um, I just want to sort of take a little bit of a detour um, just to go back over you know, the central dogma and how the genetic code actually works because you're going to be looking at lots of tables like this in order to calculate uh, DNDS ratios. And so this is the central dogma of molecular biology. You guys should have learned this in intro biology class where DNA uh, is transcribed into RNA and is then transcribed or translated into proteins. The, the translation that happens uh, from here to here uh, is facilitated by uh, this tRNA. So the tRNA has this anticodon that binds to the, the mRNA, which is this codon here. Um, and then that, the tRNA, this particular tRNA is associated with a particular amino acid. And this amino acid then builds um, this, uh, this protein, contributes one of these segments to the protein. And so a long time ago, uh, people figured out what the molecular code is. How do you go from these codons to these amino acids? And so they won the Nobel Prize when this was finally all uncovered. And so this is really the key to life, you know, the key to understanding how you go from DNA to amino acids. And what we see here is that there is, there's a lot of redundancy in that genetic code. So you're translating a genetic code where each of the individual bases has four different options, A, T, G, and C. Um, and then there's, in a codon, there's three positions. And so there are 64 different ways of expressing codons. But there's only 20 amino acids. And so that means that there's a lot of redundant information in the genetic code. And so the code is the way that we translate the mRNA into, into the polypeptide, uh, the, the protein, the amino acid sequence. And we can see that you know, there's a lot of redundancy in that UUU gives you phenylalanine, UUC gives you phenylalanine, and so forth. So you can, you can see that in the code. Um, I should walk through first um, how you actually read this table. Uh, and so say you have a codon. Is the first base a U? Okay. Then I, I go to this part of the table. And then is the second base also, uh, maybe we'll say, is the second base a C? If it is, then I go to this section of the table. 
And then we have to, is the last one an A? If so, then we go to this position in the table, and that gives us a series. And so that's how you read the table, and you can see that there's all of this redundancy. What's interesting is that the third position in the table tends not to have any information, right? There's a lot of redundancy here where any nucleotide in this third position will yield, I think this is Siri, I'm forgetting my, my abbreviations at the moment. Um, and so this is proline, any mutation in this third position will, will be a synonymous mutation, it won't change proline. So this is what we call redundancy in the code. Now this is a little sidestep from our, our main goal, but what is so fascinating is that there's a reason that this third position doesn't tend to have much information. And the reason is this wobble rule. Okay, so let's not, let's not worry too much about what's going on in this figure, just a figure that summarizes the wobble rule. Um, but basically, this is the tRNA, and this is it, it interacting with the mRNA. And so this is the codon, and this is the anticodon. These bases bind to each other. And so this is how this code here is translated uh, into an amino acid because the amino acid uh, that's connected to the tRNA is a specific amino acid that's associated with this anticodon that connects to this codon. The problem is, is that this third base position, um, because of just how these, these molecules interact in physical space, um, they tend to not be that strong of a, of a binding factor. And so this can often mess up. And so the wrong tRNA will bind to this codon. And so the molecular code has actually evolved in a way so that if there is an error in, this, in, the, in which tRNA is, is picked by the cell, then that error doesn't translate or often doesn't translate into a change in the amino acid because of that redundancy. And so we don't change the, we don't change the amino acid so the protein is made properly. And so I remember when I learned about this as an undergrad, and you know, I, not that I ever smoked pot as an undergrad or anything, but it's this kind of stoner realization of like, whoa, you know, the, the code itself. So the evolving code, the thing that is optimizing, you know, the phenotype of an organism, at some point in history, this code itself evolved to optimize. So early organisms, you know, four billion years ago, what were their adaptations? Their adaptations weren't drug resistance. Their adaptations were improving the molecular code in a way that they don't have errors associated with them um, uh, that would cause uh, amino acid changes. So this is, this is pretty cool that, you know, we, we can see that there's this non-random pattern in the genetic code, and that's non-random because natural selection acted on the code to improve its ability to faithfully translate mRNA into amino acids. So, okay, that's a sidestep, but I really like that, learning that as an undergrad, so I wanted to share that with you guys. Okay, so let's get back to this DNDS ratio. It's the ratio of non-synonymous changes divided by synonymous changes. If you get one, that means that this, this gene all of the mutations are, the, the non-synonymous sites are evolving at the same rate as the synonymous sites. And so it just means that, you know, 
it doesn't matter that these amino acids are changing. Natural selection is not seeing it. All sites in this gene are evolving as you'd expect um, through the neutral model of evolution. However, if you have an increase in the, the N, um, then you would actually see uh, positive selection. You would see uh, a ratio that's greater than one, um, and you would interpret that as positive selection. If you have a decrease in the Ns, then that's a case where you, you would interpret that as a value, you would calculate a value less than one and interpret that as purifying selection. So it would be nice and simple if we could just count up the number of non-synonymous changes and count up the number of synonymous changes. But the problem with that is that some genes have more potential for non-synonymous changes and some genes have more potential for not synonymous changes. And so we have to actually adjust our calculation so that we factor in the number of possible non-synonymous changes for a gene and the number of possible uh, synonymous changes per gene. And so what we actually get is kind of a ratio of ratios. We have the, the total number of non-synonymous substitutions that we observed divided by how many were possible and the total number of synonymous substitutions that we observed divided by the number that, are, that, are, that were possible. And so we have kind of now this ratio of ratios, um, but this is what yields a number that accounts for the fact that different sequences have different propensities to yield non-synonymous sites or synonymous site changes. So let's see sort of how that works. So say you were looking at, you had a, a gene that had this code on here, UGG. This is a case where any change in this uh, codon will actually yield a change in amino acid. So if you change that first position, you get uh, changes from uh, TRP to ARG to ARG or to uh, glycine GLY. If you change the second site, you will also get changes um, this would be a very bad change if you got that stop code on there. And even in the third site, which we know tends to have redundancy, for this uh, codon, it will also mutate the protein in a way uh, that will alter the, the, the peptide of the protein. And so all of these substitutions are non-synonymous substitutions. There's no opportunity for a synonymous change. So we wouldn't, want to, we wouldn't want to look at that and say, okay, this, this has a mutation in it and it's a non-synonymous change and therefore there's positive selection happening on this codon. Any mutation would, you, would give you a non-synonymous change. So even if that mutation was just random and natural selection did not, was not acting on it, it would still look like that. So you want to factor in that. You basically want to say, I'm not going to look at that codon because no matter what, I'm going to get the same exact result. So if we look at this codon here, so say this was in a gene and this was evolving. Um, in the first position, actually, the first position tends to not be redundant. And so mutations tend to change amino acids in the first position. But in this case, there's one scenario where the amino acid does not get changed when, when there's a mutation in the first position. In the second position, there's always a change. And in that third position, there is complete redundancy. No matter what, 
nucleotide you have in that position, you will not change the amino acid. So because of the, the way that the different codons behave, we have to account for the possibility of um, different rates of non-synonymous changes and synonymous changes um, given the underlying sequence of the gene. Okay, now I wanna sort of walk through um, exactly how you make these calculations. And specifically, I wanna start with not calculating the numerator, but calculating the denominator, because this is the tricky part, accounting for the different uh, possibilities of non-synonymous changes and different possibility of synonymous changes. Um, I am going to have you guys do this by hand in the course. Um, no one in their right mind uh, actually does this by hand because it's so much work. But I want you guys to do this by hand because I want you to understand what is involved in this calculation. And then later, if you want, you can go on and use uh, software. But you'll have a really strong understanding of what goes into this. Okay, so let's calculate the number of non-synonymous sites, so possibilities, and the number of synonymous possibilities for just the first codon of the following sequence. Note that I have already uh, translated this into mRNA. And so uh, what, what I'm showing you here is that this is mRNA that stems from a DNA sequence in this E. coli strain. Um, and then we have a separate E. coli strain. And we want to just compare these sequences. Uh, they're related to each other, um, but they have evolved. And so there's, there's uh, mutations at this site and this codon, this site and that codon, and this site and this codon. And we want to ask, do these substitutions, um, are they biased more towards non-synonymous changes and or synonymous changes? And if so, is this indicative of natural selection acting on the, the gene? And so the first step is to, well, what would we expect if the gene was just behaving neutrally? In order to do that, we have to calculate the, the total possible number of uh, non-synonymous and synonymous changes in this sequence of, of DNA. This is RNA uh, translated here. So the way that we do this is we just sort of systematically go through and look at the sequence for the first sequence and look at the, the codon in the second sequence and just go through this codon table and count up the number of potential synonymous changes and non-synonymous changes. And so we're just filling in this table one um, codon position at a time. So what we do is we go to that first position and we look up in the table and we say, if we change the C to a U, we get an amino acid change. If we change the C to an A, we get an amino acid change. If we change the C to a G, we get an amino acid change. So this is different than that. This is different than that, and this is different than that. That's how we get to that. So how do we fill out this table here? We say there are no opportunities for a synonymous change. There's only opportunities for non-synonymous changes. So zero and one. If we look at the second, the second site, we see the exact same pattern again. If we look at the third site, we see redundancy, and we see the opposite pattern. Now, we have to also go down to the other codon as well. When we do this, 
we actually see a little bit of a different pattern where one of the three yields a synonymous change and two out of three yield non-synonymous changes. So this is how we fill out the table, one, th three, and two, three. The second site behaves just like the first site did. And the third site behaves just like um, the first codon did. So next, what we have to do is we have to then take this and we have to average per site how many uh, opportunities are there for synonymous changes versus non-synonymous changes. And so that's what this table is showing us here. This is just um, the average of zero and one-third is one-six. The average of two-thirds and um, uh, three-thirds, one, is five-six. That's just simple math. You go through the table and you get this value, these values here. So that was, that was calculating the number of possible changes in these two different categories, synonymous and non-synonymous for the first codon. And we have, a, we have three codons um, throughout, this, uh, throughout this gene. Um, sorry, this is the DNA, back to the DNA. Um, don't worry about that. And what we see then is that we get an accumulation of all of these different values for all of these different sites. And then what we do is we just, um, we, we add up all of these uh, numbers here to get this total number of opportunities for non-synonymous changes and the total number of opportunities um, for, I'm um, sorry, for synonymous changes and for non-synonymous changes. Okay. So that is us calculating the denominator. Um, so now let's actually just move to the numerator. Here, what we do is we figure out what are the amino acids that are in these, these strains and whether or not these mutations have actually translated into amino acid changes. And so uh, what we see here is that this first mutation, it's in the third position and it doesn't cause an amino acid change. Whereas the second position does, or the second codon does cause an amino acid change, and the third codon does cause an amino acid change as well. And so this means that there is uh, two non-synonymous changes versus one synonymous change. So now we have all of the information to uh, calculate this DNDS ratio. And so remember, we have two non-synonymous changes that we observed, and then here is um, the number of opportunities for non-synonymous changes. We have one non-synonymous change that we observed, and here are the opportunities that we have for synonymous changes. And so when we make this calculation, we actually get a value of 1.06. So this is slightly positive. Um, it's really close to neutral, but it is slightly positive. So if we would have just used the number observed of non-synonymous versus synonymous, we would have seen a two to one ratio, an enormously large uh, DNDS ratio. Um, but when we factor in the opportunities for different types of mutations, then we see that, that that value is much lower and closer to what we would have expected by the neutral uh, expectation. And so our interpretation then is that there is positive selection acting on this gene, but its benefit is not enormous. It's, it's just slightly beneficial.
So that is how you calculate the NDS ratios and how you interpret them. So the question is, have people calculated the NDS ratios for SARS-CoV-2 and does it indicate that SARS-CoV-2 is actually adapting as it spreads uh, from one human to, to another human? So is it adapting to us? And so this is actually a slide that I showed you um, in, a, in a previous lecture about SARS-CoV-2 uh, evolution, the second lecture. Um, I told you, don't worry about the DNDS ratio that you know, I just interpreted those results for you, but now you understand how those results were actually calculated and what exactly they mean. And so in this earlier lecture, I showed you this plot here where there's, this is um, a nucleotide position in this S gene. So the S gene is for the S protein, the spike protein that the virus uses to recognize its outer membrane of host cells, of human cells. This is the thing that binds to ACE2, if you remember. And so the human ACE2 is different than that ACE2. And so we would hypothesize that maybe the virus is experiencing natural selection to improve that molecular interaction between S and ACE2 to better find human cells and infect them. So uh, the way to test this hypothesis is to look at these mutations and see, are they biased towards uh, non-synonymous changes or are they just like synonymous changes? What we find is that if we look at the entire S uh, protein, then we find a shift in the DMDS ratio so that there's, it's above one, indicating that overall this protein is, on, is experiencing positive natural selection. But not all regions of the protein are experiencing the same level of positive selection. So that's pretty cool. Um, and if you look at just this sort of subunit one, so this is this blue area here that includes the RBD, this is the receptor binding domain. This is the place in the protein of action. And so if it's improving at infecting human cells, really the, the adaptive mutations are most likely to be happening in this position in the gene. And so when we look at just this subunit and leave out this, this S2 subunit, we see a pretty high DNDS ratio. And then if we just look at the mutations that, are, that, are, that have been observed in just this small yellow region, the people that published this uh, are reporting infinitely large DNDS ratio. Well, that's not true. Um, and I bet a reviewer will call them out on that uh, before it's actually published. Remember that this is a paper that was um, a preprint. What this means is that actually they only observed Ns and they observed no Ss. And so if you have a zero in the uh, denominator, then it makes this you know, infinitely large or it destroys the, the fraction. Um, in this case, they should probably just give you the total number of Ns and then show that it's divided by zero rather than giving you that symbol. So it just conveys a little bit more information. Uh, but the S2 uh, also does have some uh, level of, of positive selection. But so this is a really cool pattern where you're seeing positive selection overall, but when you really hone in on the functional part of the protein, you get enhanced positive selection. That's a really strong sign that natural selection is, is driving the pattern of, of mutations that we're observing in this S protein. Okay. So this is just a summary, um, mostly take edited from a Wikipedia entry um, that I just thought laid out um, how this DNDS ratio works. Um, this is just so that you can, you can sort of think about it and read through it. I'm not going to read through it now. 
Um, it is it is called a KAKS ratio. So in the literature, you'll often see DNDS ratio or you'll see KAKS ratio. Um, they the difference between them gets blurred a lot of the time. So um, if you're if you're seeing these two different uh, ratios, they 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 should mean the exact same thing. Okay, so just to summarize uh, this lecture, using phylogenies, we can estimate when traits evolved, when diseases spread from one area to another area, when diseases spread between uh, different host species. So we can use that molecular clock to do that. Using sequence variation, we can detect whether natural selection has acted to enhance or reduce the rate of molecular evolution within genes. Thank you, guys. Take care. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.